Good morning, church. We are going to embark on a passage that seems so underwhelming, we didn't even have the actual right scripture up as my credit. So, uh, uh, and you know what? Like, I read this a few times, and I was like, what moron gave me this passage? It was me. Hmm. Honestly, this passage is really just about some information about Paul being transferred about 60 miles and how that happened and some behind-the-scene activity. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. As I read this short passage as a whole, I'm struck by a theological staple that most of us would agree with until we don't. A characteristic of God that we are all for when it makes things easier and it kind of ties a bow around our faith but we tend to fight against and forsake when things don't necessarily go the way we expect or prefer or don't go into a box to make God seem the way we want him to be. We believe God is this characteristic in most things, but perhaps we don't think he can be this in all things because we can't reconcile how this can be and he can still be good because of how things tend to work out in our lives. And today we're going to see God's sovereignty even when things don't work the way we think they should or expect. And by God's sovereignty, because I'm sure you've used sovereignty in a sentence this week, I mean just how in control God really is. You don't get to pick and choose when you think God should or can be in control. But today we'll study how God was continuing to be in control for his glory, even when he is subtle and the natural mind finds ways to explain away his intervening, as just dumb luck or some natural explanation that prefers to keep God out of things. So let's start in verse 23. We have the verse. I believe we do. Yes. And here's what it says. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now, if this is your first week or you haven't really been reading ahead or anything like that, what does this mean? Well, last week, Ruth taught us from the first half of the book of Acts 23, or chapter 23, where Paul was being in prison and then was being struck in the mouth by the orders of the great high priest. I don't know if he was great, but he was the high priest that Paul calls out, either because he did not recognize the high priest because of poor eyesight, or possibly because Paul was going to show up the high priest, and we don't know for sure, but it was probably one of those reasons. Paul, after having some spirited dialogue with those in the Sanhedrin, then after uh, Paul shares about the hope of the resurrection, the Sadducees and the Pharisees started to debate and argue like religious fanatics like to. So after this uproar of religious argument and anger towards Paul, it started to escalate. Luke's, Luke documents that there was a secret plot to attempt to kill Paul, but Paul's nephew, Paul had a sister, who knew, got wind of the plan and got permission to talk with Paul and warn Paul while he was in prison. Paul then sent his nephew to the commander that was in charge of Paul's imprisonment to have the commander be led in on the plot against Paul. This is where we pick up today. The commander is going to take Paul to Governor Felix for trial. He's going to pull out all the stops when it comes to protection. Just as we just read, there were 470 men, soldiers, spearmen, and horsemen, all providing safe passage for Paul to have this meeting with Governor Felix. 
So why the big deal being made about Paul and his protection? Well, part of it is that Paul was a Roman citizen. That is the natural reasoning. But Jesus, as Ruth pointed out last week, stood with Paul while he was in prison. And what did he say to Paul? Well, here's what he said. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus told Paul what would happen. He wasn't assuming that maybe this was going to be true. When God says something, it is not a guess or just a hopeful statement. When God says something, it is truth. And so when Jesus stated that Paul would testify in Rome, God's will would be done. In spite of the world's best efforts, there weren't going to get Uh, no matter what the world wanted to do, whatever man's plan was, because God's plan always supersedes man's plan. But we'll see more of that as we talk about this passage. So we're going to read the correspondence of the official letter that the commander from the Roman army sent to Governor Felix alongside as he was transporting Paul. So here's how it starts, 25. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius, Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now, let's be real. The commander was not the hero of this Roman citizen that he alludes to that he is in this letter. The commander made a mistake, and because of his detaining of Paul, a Roman citizen, without fair trial, he felt he needed to cover his bases or make himself look a bit better before his authorities. Which honestly, (laughs) is something I think many of us do as well, if we're aware of it or not. What I have noticed is that I like to attempt to make up for what I have done wrong when I have sinned in some way against God. Is it just me? Don't leave me on an island. All right, Megan, thank you. Franco's Daniel, thank you. Okay, so I try harder or I refrain a bit more from something. And while doing that is not necessarily bad, the assumption that by doing that, I am off the hook for my sin or transgression is kind of transactional when it comes to my relationship with God. Listen, the only thing that lets us off the hook from our sin is believing in the one who took our punishment. And while that around Easter time, and especially Good Friday, that's a shameless plug, 6.30 this Friday, let's be here, is something that we are reminded of or is emphasized, our relationship with God is one that Jesus paid what we owed. That is what our relationship with God is about. The fact that he paid the debt that we deserved to pay. And so trying harder or attempting to be more religious when we fail is not what God asks of us. It is to believe in him at his word. It is to believe in him as our sole means of salvation. And when we believe, God, through the power of his spirit, gives us the ability to behave more and more like someone who has actually been forgiven. So the commander's statement that he came and rescued him. Okay, It's not exactly as true as he's implying, but Paul, through his citizenship, made known to the commander and his troops their obligation to help Paul have a fair trial before the governor. The commander continues in his letter to Governor Felix, verse 28, I wanted you to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. 
I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. The commander writes about what we studied a few weeks back where the Jews who had probably followed Paul to Jerusalem from both Corinth and Ephesus where riots broke out because of their disdain for Paul and his message, they have now followed him. And as we read a few weeks back, here's what Paul was accused of. It was all the way back in Acts 21. It says, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. I'm sorry, that's the only tone I have for this. This is the man who teaches everyone, every, so I gotta stop. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. These are the accusations that were following Paul. But what is interesting about them is that no matter how angry this mob of people are, that doesn't necessarily make the accusations true. The taking a Greek into the temple was just an assumption because Paul and Trophimus were near the temple. So to create an uproar among the other Jews, the accusation made against Paul was that he allowed Trophimus in the temple, which he didn't. But because of their detest for Paul, they actually probably believed this accusation that they were making. Check it. Hate will make us justify ourselves without care for reality. And also, as the commander pointed out, the accusation had to do with questions about their law, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Which, as the, Jew, as the Jewish opponent said in chapter 21, which we just read, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Now this, as Paul defends at the beginning of his speech in Jerusalem, is that he is a Pharisee and was more zealous for the law than anyone. But the law points to Jesus, the resurrected one. And the self-justifying people could not accept this. So this message, that God gives grace for your sin by believing in the one who died and rose again was too much for this traveling band of religious zealots to hear. And so they devised a plan to have Paul killed. And here is the Roman army protecting Paul so he can have his trial before Felix. The commander also states that he found no charge against Paul that deserved death or imprisonment, which speaks to the theme that Paul was consistently innocent during these riots and accusations, but they continued to follow him, yet he continued to be protected and cared for. Why? Well, to go back to what we said, God's will was for Paul to testify in Rome. And as I've heard some people say, you ready? This is going to be fun for me. You ready? Where it is God's will, it is God's bill. Has anyone ever heard this? Okay, you're like, what? All right, hear me. If God is going to lead Paul, he is also going to provide for Paul. Not just financially, but protectively and practically. And that doesn't always mean he is obvious. He, it doesn't even mean he's going to use believers. This Roman army don't believe in Jesus. God's will is produced through God's wisdom, not our own. And that means that we don't always see how God is working, yet he is working. And you don't have to wonder if he's actually at work 
The prophet Isaiah, God's speaking through him, and Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you know what this passage implies, spoken by God through the Isaiah prophet, 700 years prior to the incarnation of Christ being born to Mary? This means you and I, not smarter than God. I know, right? Nor are we more logical, nor are we more strategic. And while I know, I want to think me, the created being, is intelligent and full of common sense and critical thinking. The creator, the sustainer, the majestic maker of all things, yeah, he's smarter, he's wiser, he's much better at keeping the world spinning on its axis than I am. And honestly, when I remember and I acknowledge that, it's pretty easy to then concede that he is a better sovereign God than I am. And that's better for me. And to be honest, that's better for you as well, that God's in control and I am, in, I am not. But let's continue, and we'll come back to this point again and again in a few moments. Verse 30, the commander speaking, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, that's Paul, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. The commander, Claudius, as he refers to himself in the beginning of his letter, is transporting Paul and requiring those accusing him to be present to formally present their case against Paul. This is how this letter is concluded. That Luke documents, he documents this essentially informational as a written explanation of who Paul is and why they're using the amount of resources they are to transport this one man to the governor. Verse 31, Luke continues, so the, soldier, the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him far as Antipatris. Luke then continues regarding what took place, this large group of soldiers moving Paul at night got as far as Antipatris, a Roman military outpost 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about halfway to Caesarea, where they were destined. Verse 32, the next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived, arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. Once they had reached Antipatris, the soldiers and the horsemen could split up. And the horsemen, or the cavalry, they took Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea. Once they arrived, they handed Governor Felix the letter and put Paul in his custody. Verse 34, you guys are thinking this is the shortest sermon ever by me. It's not. Verse 34, the governor read the letter and asked, what province is he from? Learning that he was from Sicilia, I always say that wrong, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Governor Felix wanted to make sure that he was the governing official over Paul, and Paul was from Sicilia. He was part of the Roman province of Syria. Paul then was put under guard in Herod's palace, where the governor would reside as well. So this, not so bad. Not Motel 6, right? No offense to Motel 6 if you stay there. Now, this is what happened. And in two weeks, the week after Easter, because this is Palm Sunday, next week's what? Easter. Easter, good. In two weeks, 
we will continue this portion of scripture. We're going to go into chapter 24, but let's read one verse as we conclude today from chapter 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. So after being under guard for five days, Paul then gets his day in court, if you will, with Ananias, the high priest, a few elders, and a lawyer to bring the charges against Paul to Governor Felix. It's getting good, y'all. And yet God in his sovereignty is not just making a day in court, but a heavenly appointment for Paul a messenger, an ambassador, a child of God to testify what he knows to be true, that a resurrected Savior came into our history and made a way that we, you, I, us, could be made right with God. Look again at what Jesus says to Paul in the passage from last week. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God was preparing Paul to go not just to Caesarea, which was in Israel, but to continue on to Rome, 2,000 miles away from where we are leaving him today. And Paul along the way would not just wait for his big chance to share about Jesus when he gets to Rome, but would continue to testify to where he was, wherever he was, about the beautiful gift of grace found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what is this short, forgotten, mostly narrative, informational passage really tell me about God? Well, we have a running joke among the leaders here at Church of the Valley when we discuss what God has done and what God is doing among us as a people. We say often, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. And we say that sarcastically, not because that we are surprised that he is in control, mind you, but that we are surprised that so quickly we tend to forget how in control he really is. For Paul, God is working through him and is interceding and is intervening but again, this isn't just through the work of believers, but also those who have no idea in the slightest that God is using them to accomplish his will. God's will will be done. You ready? Say it with me. God's will will be done. Good job. Like, I really believe that. I really believe that the word of God reveals that God's will will be done in the narrative. I believe God's character is revealed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They point out how authoritative and sovereign God really is. And why do I believe this? Because this is so anti-me. That's why I believe this. I want my own way. I want to control things. 
I want glory, I want praise, I want to be seen as holy and perfect, I want to earn my way to heaven, I want to be sovereign, I want authority, I want worship, I want to be God, but none of that is what God wants, nor what is best. But worship and authority and sovereignty and control and worship and praise, they're all God's possession. They're all his business and they're all for him. God knows what he is doing in your life and in mine. I was born to divorce parents. I had to deal with their fighting over custody for me, so much so that eventually my mom kidnapped me and changed my name and hid me from my father for close to a year. I lost my mom about four years later to cancer, and my father and I never really connected emotionally. After losing my mom, I acted out and became somewhat of a terror for my single-parent father. I wanted nothing to do with religion because after losing my mom, because, of, because if God were real, I believed he was awful. I eventually became a Christian after being challenged with the resurrection of Jesus. More on that next week. But still was very, very prideful. And I was an immature young man. I semi-retired from the insurance business that I ran and began to do ministry by speaking at different schools and companies and outreaches and churches in my mid-20s. Many of those speaking engagements made new connections for me, and I made new friends, and often while speaking at different church communities, I was offered more opportunities to speak and work with and at different churches, all while still struggling with the pride that getting to be in front of thousands of people every year produced in an already narcissistic young man. God began in this time to bring older, imperfect wiser-than-me mentors in my life. One of them is hella old, and his name's Mike Miller. <laughs> Who knew me in my 20s, when I was so unsanctified. I met men like Dave Whitaker, who I ended up working under for a year. I ended up becoming the interim pastor at a church in South San Jose. And while that church was not perfect, and those who were there remember, God used that season to grow and challenge me in ways that I needed desperately at that time. I was given opportunity at my former church in Sunnyvale to plant a church community, and using their property without having to pay them a cent, we got to start a church plant. A friend of mine was leading a large church in the area and asked me to guest preach at this little old church in Santa Clara about one mile from where I was living that I had never really heard of or been to other than getting speeding tickets on Winchester in front of said church in high school. God brought myself and this church plant community full of younger people to coexist and essentially marry this older church where the youngest people represented remembered the moon landing. Let's be real. God brought, it's true, I, I did the math. God brought change into the community in a way that while it hasn't been easy, it has been Jesus exalting. God has brought different generations, races, theological backgrounds, political affiliations, and preferences together, all under the cross and the empty tomb for the glory of God. So yeah, it's almost like God knows what he's doing, huh? God really does know what he's doing. He knows what Paul has done. He knows what Paul would do. He knows where Paul is from, and he knows where Paul would go. 
And for some of us, we'd prefer to think that God just foreknew these things as if he was a spectator rather than an initiator. But hear me, God being in control doesn't mean things work out the way they do by luck or by accident. God being in control means that God is involved. And when some of us hear that, we automatically go to the worst case. But what about this thing that's happening? But what about this person not believing? What about these shootings? What about this war and that war? If God were in control, why doesn't he put a stop to this? Hear me, he will. He absolutely will put a stop to it. I read ahead, he wins and he reigns and there will come a day when there is no more pain, there is no more fear and there is no more sin. But while sin is still in this world, our will will mess things up. And yet God's will will continue to be done in spite of us and our selfishness and our pride and our sin and God being in control as I find my identity more and more in Jesus becomes more and more comforting because my close-handedness and my close-mindedness become less and less as I see and trust that God is ultimately good even when my circumstances are bad. And God's will is to give everyone the opportunity to hear about Jesus and to know Jesus and to be saved by Jesus and to believe in Jesus and to be like Jesus and to bow down to Jesus and to grow in our likeness of Jesus. You wanna know God's will? Look at God's son. You wanna know how to do so? Look at God's word. You know how I know that any of us can do this? Because of God's spirit who resides in those who by faith bow down to Jesus. And he, the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, gives those who God draws and adopts into his family the ability and the priority to want to serve and love and be loved by Jesus. But you know what I know the spirit does in those who God draws? There is surrender. Surrendering of making things about you, surrendering your priorities, surrendering your will, surrendering your wants, and replacing them with a thirst for God's glory. Surrendering yourself so God can make you a new creation. Surrendering to the one we can trust, who knows us and what we need even more than what we think we need. Surrender will always be a byproduct of faith in Christ. And yet when you understand who he is and what he has done, it's easy to want to surrender, not because surrender is easy, but because Jesus and his grace is that beautiful. Worship team, why don't you come on up? And I'm going to end with this short parable from Jesus. In Matthew 13, Jesus says it this way, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and he bought that field. In his joy, Jesus says. He gave up all that he had. He surrendered all that he had because the gospel of grace was worth it to him.
there's a card in the pew back in front of you. If you are yet to commit to this Jesus and are serious about wanting to bow down to him, not because I had inflection in my voice when I spoke, but you want this Jesus that we talk about who brings us salvation and he brings us joy and it ain't easy, but we get to be with Jesus. If you're not exactly sure how to bow down to him, if you're not exactly sure how to commit to him, fill out the card and say that you want to know how to do this. Check the box, put your name, put contact info, drop it in the box as you leave. And for those of us who have already made a commitment to Christ, but perhaps we've wanted to take back control. Can we just be real? This is like all of us. Or we have begun to act as if we don't want Jesus to really be in control of certain portions of our lives. Feel free to reach out via the prayer card. Fill out the prayer card. Say, I just, I, I need prayer. I need someone to supplement, I need prayer for supplement my obedience as I attempt to repent and trust and follow Jesus, but I need others to be praying for me. And we have a prayer team, and we want to give you that opportunity to fill out the card and drop it in the box, and we'll pray alongside you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true, and even when it seems insignificant and kind of lame, if I'm honest, God, there's so much in it that tells us about your character. There's so much in it that tells us about the truth of your gospel. There's so much in it that brings life. So God, would we be a people that want that life, the eternal life that you give us, the eternal life that means that we get to follow you, the eternal life that starts with you giving us the faith to believe you and trust you and that we'd be willing to surrender ourselves to you. God, thank you that you're a work among your people. May you be glorified as we sing praises to your name. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.